Before we start this meeting of the Graham Norton Book Club, I just need to warn you that there is some rather fruity language and some adult themes coming up. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, hello, one and all. I am very happy to be welcoming you to this meeting of my book club, the last one for a while. Before we take our art off the walls and wipe down the whiteboards, we have a wonderful collection of books to talk about and stories to tell. Helping me to do a final tidy of the stationery cupboard is the form captain of fiction herself, Sarah Collins. Hello. Hello. And I hear, uh, sickbed be gone. You're out and about at glamorous events. Woohoo. Out and about. I was glamorizing at the BAFTAs recently, <gasps> which is actually really difficult to navigate in a wheelchair. They did their best, but there was a huge crush. I was not pushing myself, I hasten to add. I had a helper who really enthusiastically rammed me right into Michelle Yeoh's ankle. And all was well that ended well. Absolutely no one was injured by my kind of ungainly attempts to roll myself down the red carpet. It was huge fun. And also, Michelle Yeoh can take care of herself, you know, if she, if she felt well, she, she was being attacked. I mean, that was the thing yeah. that was worrying me, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> More injury. No, she was lovely. <laughs> Uh, did you see did you see the young royals were they cutting a rug with you after the event I did not I was in a kind of nosebleed section all the way at the back so I probably saw a speck of Kate's opera gloves well listen you've had William and Kate but this week we've got the queen yes we do in the shape of Alan Bennett's story of royalty and mobile libraries the uncommon reader here to discuss it are Jeff who chose the book for us Stuart Katie and Sheevan or to be accurate a current librarian a former librarian a literary agent and an English teacher so an appropriate crew hello all hello 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 (laughs) hi as one they spoke. Uh, <laughs> so, Jeff, am I right? You're the current librarian. Yeah, and I sell mobile phones, but yes, I'm also a librarian. Don't we're not forgetting about the phones, Jeff. Don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> um, was it recently you did the thing with the fine, Jeff? Oh, uh, so it wasn't a fine. It was uh, the the library that I work in is uh, a membership library. And so I did a membership for somebody which was supposed to be £145. But unfortunately, I was so busy chatting away to them that I actually typed in £415 instead. (laughs) Three days later, our cashier actually realised the mistake. And then the following week, I had to refund her uh, the £270 over payment (gasps) actually made. At least I hope I've refunded it. Two hundred and seventy pounds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think it was seven hundred and twenty. Two thousand seven hundred. Oh <laughs> the library shut. I now. know. I know. <laughs> and uh, Stuart Bain, you've got a very exciting job coming up. I mean, it's practically show business. Yes, I'm all very showbiz these days. Um, my series three pick for the podcast, Anne Cleves, has asked me to interview my series two pick for the podcast, Val McDermott, at Shetland Noir, which is a big crime writing festival coming up in June. So that's very exciting. Wow. Well, listen to this, guys. This podcast <laughs> opens doors. <Absolutely>. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, Royal Festival Hall, soon. Yep. <laughs> and uh, Shivan, any any sign of baby number two? No. So um, we're kind of getting our house ready for baby number two and funny enough our, our daughter is now getting very possessive and jealous about all the new things that are starting to pop up so she's she's claimed the baby's cot she's pla- she's claimed the car she's seat. going to get a rude awakening i think so yeah <laughs> yeah not looking forward to that and uh katie thank you very much for joining us and tearing yourself away online where do you game do you game in life or do you game online 
So I'm do D and D. So I'm in person, old school. So like um, Str- Stranger Things, Dungeons and Dragons. It's one of those ones where I'm like, I was doing it before Stranger Things. I'm doing it before the kids made it cool again. Um, <laughs> so my old D and D group all went off and had babies, and so I've ended up press ganging all the office. I think they enjoy it. Sure they do, Katie. Yeah, Just they force love them it. to stay late in a basement and listen to me describe <laughs> things. They love it. It's extraordinary <laughs> of all the things to make a comeback. That's making a comeback. Yeah. It's so so much fun, guys. Yeah, D&D and Tamagotchis. Yeah, they're big again. <laughs> uh, all right, well, listen, you go and amuse yourselves amongst the stacks and we'll find out later if the Uncommon Reader was just the ticket or whether it was straight on the returns pile. After we've heard from Alan Bennett, yes, very excited to say I got the chance to sit down with the great man himself. And after Sarah has given us her three of the best, what are you bringing us today? Well, I have to say, I thought An Uncommon Reader was just the ticket for me. And what was so special about it for me was that it's such a lovely way to end this season of the book club with this kind of lovely meditation on the power of reading to change even someone as unchangeable as the Queen, you know, the sort of notoriously fixed North Star of the nation who has this kind of epiphany through um, developing a reading life. So, of course, it's kind of self-evident that I'm going to be doing novels all about the impact of fiction today. Okay. Well, what could be better for a book club? And Her Majesty is not the only queen in the house. What is drag if not a by-the-book expression of dressing for success? You grab a wig, some fabric, and two lashes, you dress like society's idea of a young, beautiful, and rich person, and poof! Literary goddesses, party of two. Dean Kuntz and Janet Ivanovich reporting to shake down the bisexual middle schoolers for their daddy's money. Legendary drag performers Trixie Mattel and Katya Zamolodzikova are here to help with their book, Working Girls, Trixie and Katya's Guide to Professional Womanhood. And they'll be sharing a few tips later on in our Talking Book Slot. Right. Time to open up Alan Bennett's The Uncommon Reader. The story begins with the Queen discovering a City of Westminster travelling library outside one of Buckingham Palace's back doors. Here she meets Norman, an enthusiastic reader employed in her kitchens. She also borrows a book, something by Ivy Compton Burnett, mainly out of politeness, but she finds it hard going. However, she's back the next week and this time goes for Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love and she is indeed smitten with reading, something she hasn't had much time or enthusiasm for in the past. Now, with Norman as her newly promoted ally, she embarks on a reading journey through everything from Jane Austen to Jean Genet, from Fielding to Forster. In fact, she becomes so obsessed with books that she completely loses interest in other duties. Much to the consternation of her family and staff, especially her rather disapproving private secretary, Sir Kevin, her eyes and her mind are open by the places she's visiting and the characters she's meeting as she reads. She begins to think differently about the world, about art, about other people, about her life and about herself. Alan Bennett rose to fame as part of Beyond the Fringe, the smash-hit early 60s review that also included such greats as Peter Cook, Dudley Moore and Jonathan Miller. He went on to become one of this country's best-known and best-loved writers for stage, screen and TV, as well as for his journalism essays and diaries. His hit plays, like The Madness of George III, The History Boys and The Lady in the Van, found a worldwide audience as equally successful films. 
In fact, he was nominated for an Oscar for his The Madness of King George screenplay. And it's not the first time he's written about the Queen. His 1988 play, A Question of Attribution, was about Her Majesty and Anthony Blunt, who was the surveyor of the Queen's pictures, but who had also been an agent for the Soviets during the 30s and 40s, part of the Cambridge spy ring. The play is set just before this fact is publicly revealed and raises the question of whether the Queen knew about his past. Alan himself played Blunt opposite Prunella Scales in the West End version. We were, of course, delighted when he said yes to doing an interview. And the other thing he said was, I'd like to do it in person. So, if Alan Bennett says, come and see me, you go. Safely installed in his sitting room, I started with whether he'd set out to write a book about reading or a book about the Queen. Or a book about the Queen. It just occurred to me one day what would happen if the Queen became an avid reader. And I think, uh, in retrospect, I wished on to her ignorance. I mean, I imagined that she hadn't read anything virtually. <laughs> and it was very unfair because there's no reason she hadn't read as much as any ordinary person. But it really was a beginning for her, the beginning of the book. And it, it mirrored in some ways the way I started reading, so... The first novel I read was uh, Nancy Mitford's Pursuit of Love. The book that the Queen feels she has to borrow from the travelling library is a book by Ivy Compton Burnett. I came to Ivy Compton Burnett quite late and I, and, and left her as well <laughs> quite soon because uh, she's very, very difficult. But the Queen saying that she'd been brought up to... Uh, eat all her mashed potatoes and, and bread and butter. And the fact that uh, it was hard didn't defeat her. She, she finished it, uh, and that's what started her off. And you've been a real advocate for libraries. Was that part of the book? Was part of this story sort of a campaigning? Like you, you pick, she didn't just find some books. It's the rarest of things, uh, a mobile library. Well, mobile libraries, well, even a few years ago, really, were still going in Yorkshire. In, in the, we lived part of the time in a village there, and uh, the mobile library used to come uh, once a week. Uh, it doesn't do now. There's an Institute of Economic Affairs, which sounds like a public service institute. It's a right-wing think tank, really, and he wanted to turn our library into a pizza hut. Uh, anyway, we we saved our library, and it's been a roaring success. And um, it's full of children from the local flats. Uh, and it's, it's also just nice to go in there. It's a nice place. And in the story, you have quite a romantic view of the power of reading. You know, the Queen, she is changed by these books. She becomes more empathetic. She becomes more interested. Is that your genuine belief? You think that's true? Yes, I think it is true. I'm very ill-read myself in the sense that I haven't read Jane Austen much. I haven't read all of Dickens. But every time I read a classic in inverted commas, it makes me realise how... If you have read a lot, you are expanded by it. Did you write 
this before or after a question of attribution, your play about the Queen? I wrote it uh, after a question of attribution. A question of attribution was, I think, the first time uh, the Queen was presented uh, on the stage. I mean, it was long before um, The Crown and and, uh, Netflix and so on. And uh, she was presented absolutely seamlessly by um, Prunella Scales, who is the same size as the Queen, which is important. And I played Anthony Blunt opposite the Queen. And when she stepped out in front of the audience on the first night, there was a, a stunned silence. They, she looked so like the Queen that uh, it was very difficult to wish that thought away. I mean, I used to look at her when we were on the stage and think, well, how is the Queen different from this? Um, <laughs> but uh, then when you saw her, when she stepped off, she then became herself again. I mean, without altering anything at all. She hasn't got the credit for being uh, the first person to do it and to do it without glamour. She saw that the Queen was slightly suburban and presented her like that. I mean, I don't think that was libelous. I think that was actually a true perception, really. Presumably... If she hasn't, there must be familiars of the Queen who saw the play, who've read the story. Uh, Have you had any feedback from people who knew the Queen well? I was always asked whether the Queen had read it, which I don't know whether she did or not. It's very short. I mean, you think if someone wrote a very short book about me, I might read it. (laughs) No, the only thing I remember about the question of attribution, after it, uh, I met uh, Lord Charteris, who's the Queen's private secretary. And he said, oh, yes, you wrote that play about um, Anthony Blunt. The whole point of that play was, did the Queen know and did he know that the Queen knew? They both knew. But that is not to be said. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know. I don't know why it hadn't to be said, because it was long ago, but anyway... And because you had sort of laid claim, you had put your flag in the fictitious Queen, were, was, are you slightly miffed that Peter Morgan has come along with his the Queen and the no, audience? No, I, and I, I only get a bit miffed when I feel it's inaccurate. There's no need to fictionalise it, it seems to me, which I think they slightly do. They've had to do it as they've gone on. I think to begin with, they didn't. And there's real affection, I think, for the Queen in this book. Yeah. Oh, well, 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 it's, it, again, this sounds insulting to say, but she's part of the landscape of my life. That was what was so hard when she died, that you, it was somehow something that was, in my case, I only met her just to shake hands once. You know, she was part of the scenery. She wasn't, wasn't part of my life in any way. But you had... Writing this book, you would walked in her low-heeled shoes. I mean, do you feel that you did sort of know her? Yes, but uh, I knew her in the way that uh, the nation knew her, really. You knew her restraint and her disapproval uh, and her shyness, and she was not difficult to write dialogue for. 
Uh, one of the funniest lines that I say myself <laughs> that I wrote was when in um, A Question of Attribution, Blunt said uh, that he'd been to Venice. And she said, oh, Venice. Yes, we were in Venice last year. Unusual place. (laughs) (laughs) That somehow sums up her whole situation (laughs) and nothing surprises her uh, and nothing enthuses her in a way. And uh, that's what makes her good material to really. And so many of your characters aren't from that world. The vast majority of your characters are working class or lower middle class. Were you surprised that you got into the head of essentially these very posh people so easily? Um, No, but it was, for me, I'm afraid, writing isn't often a pleasure. But writing this was a pleasure, really. And as distinct from plays, you know, you aren't restricted in any way when you're writing a fiction. You can just put them where you want. And and that was a luxury, really, for a playwright. And in the book, you're never mean to the Queen. It's, it's the other people in her circle come out of the book worst. And yet you turned down. Didn't you turn down a knighthood from the Queen? Well, uh, not for any estimable reason, really. Because I, I didn't think it would suit me, really. I mean, jo- Jonathan Miller, um, he took a knighthood and then he never let you use it. <laughs> so, And that's often the case with people, that they take it, but they don't bother with it. And I just didn't want to do that. So anyway, there we are. Uh, OK, there's some questions we ask everybody, so we'll get to them. So I think you might have told us already, uh, a book that turned you on to reading. Um, it's a whole series of books, the William books. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, my father was a butcher, and um, at one point they left Yorkshire and he went to work in Guildford. And next door to the butcher shop where he worked, there was a, a small private library. There were libraries like this, little shops which had books in the back. Anyway, this shop had all the William books. I was 10 and I knew that once I'd finished reading one book there would be another one Uh, and that was immensely um, well encouraging really because I I really did love the William books but the William books have been uh, revivified by Martin Jarvis who's absolutely superb way he reads them, really terrific. And when did the writing come along? Obviously, you loved books, you loved reading. When did you figure out that you had a way with words? When I was at university, I used to do what nowadays would be called stand-up. And so I started writing for myself then. And then uh, when I was in Beyond the Fringe with Peter Cook and Jonathan Miller and Dudley Moore, it was a big success but I felt I wanted to do something else besides. So my first play was really a cross between a review, which Beyond the Fringe was, and a proper play, and that was 40 years on. And I was so lucky because I didn't uh, dare think of it, but the producers asked Gilgood whether he would do it, and he did do it. So... Uh, I didn't look back from that. 
The second book I want to know about is the one that you feel not enough people have read, not enough people know no, about. It's here on the sofa somewhere. Okay. I'm sitting on it, and it's, <laughs> it's called The Tap Dancer. And it's by Andrew Barrow. And it's the story of a middle-class family. Uh, he doesn't even give them a name. Uh, and the father of the family is a retired civil servant, very eccentric, very opinionated, and very funny. And it's just their life, really. They, they have five sons. They end up in the Isle of Man. I can't say why it's funny, but it was... I think it won the Hawthornden Prize, so it was very well received, but nobody's ever heard of it. And the final book we want to know about is a book you read that you liked so much you wish it was by Alan Dennis. Uh, well, any, anything by um, Wilfred Thesiger, the, the Traveller, the Arabian Sands, uh, the Marsh Arabs. And and I'm not a traveller, and I'm, I'm not wedded to uh, physical hardship in the way that he was, he uh, crossed the empty quarter, the desert, with um, just a handful of dates. And uh, the only connection I can think with with him is that um, my youth was a fairly empty quarter and uh, there wasn't even a handful of uh, any dates at all, really, in my case. (laughs) He was a fierce character, is the sort of person you wouldn't dare say I've read your books or even refer to the fact that he was a, also a writer. But anyway, Ulfred Thesiger. The national treasure, an overused phrase I know, but really true in this case, the wonderful Alan Bennett, talking about his love of travel writer Wilfred Thesiger, his own writing and the uncommon reader. Uh, have you met him, Sarah? I haven't, but it sounded as if you were really delighted to have been in the room with him, and I sort of wished I could have been a fly on the wall. If you were making a movie about meeting Alan Bennett, it was like a set. <laughs> there was a, a crackling <laughs> fire, big sofas. It was just so uh, lovely. It was a real, real pleasure to meet him. Honestly, gorgeous, gorgeous man. Well, now, uh, after that, what else could we do but lose ourselves in more books about books? Sarah, what have you found for us on the shelves? Kicking us off, it's an unnecessary woman by a Lebanese-American author named Rabi Alamedine. Um, And it's about a 70-year-old Lebanese woman. So she's a retired bookseller and she leads this incredibly misanthropic cloistered existence in the same flat she's lived in for 60 years after her husband walked out on her. She goes nowhere and she does nothing except that once a year she chooses a classic novel to translate into Arabic. And she spends the whole year doing that without ever attempting to publish them or show the work to anyone. And that's it. It's a portrait of this fairly unlikable shot-in living this decidedly narrow life. But of course, it's infinitely more than that because it's really about how memory and education and imagination expand our circumstances immeasurably. And so as she weaves through these musings about what's brought her to this point, kind of interspersed with all the stuff she's read during her life, we realise that her inner life, which has been nourished by this 
incredibly broad and nourishing reading is limitless. And it's not all learned and highbrow either. The voice here is at times delightfully acidic and gossipy and as well as being erudite. And that's what made it unputdownable for me. All right. And the next book about books. The next book about books has the word book in the title. It's called Hell of a Book. It's by Jason Mott, won the National Book Award in America, I think in maybe 21 or 2020. It's very hard to figure out how to describe it, apart from saying it's something pretty close to genius, I think. So we're following an African-American author on book tour. Uh, who's apparently afflicted by a condition where he can't tell what's real and what's fiction anymore, including whether this 10-year-old boy that seems to be popping up everywhere on this tour is real or he's the boy on the news who's just been shot dead by the police. And on one level, I was utterly gripped by this book simply because it's this superbly poetic rant about the impact of police brutality, which surprised me because I usually turn away from anything that advertises itself as about police brutality. Brutality. Um, but in fact, the book is precisely about that impulse to turn away. It's amusing on fiction as a coping mechanism as well as a denial mechanism. And on a thematic level, it's kind of getting at the limits of fiction. So how do you express the inexpressible? In this case, the trauma of never feeling physically safe because of the colour of your skin. But also, can fiction ever produce catharsis? And reading this particular book felt truly cathartic to me, but it also reminded me of the limits of fiction, that there are people and experiences that are either too far on the margins or too traumatic for fiction to have ever covered properly. And it's truly, truly genius. And as a reader, is it blurred or do you know what's real and what's fiction? It's lovely, I think, the effect of this book in the beginning, because of the first few chapters, you're actually not sure what's going on. You're not even really sure if the author himself is real. It's a kind of lovely metafictional bit of magic that he pulls off. And it starts in the most cracking way with this guy running naked through a hotel because he's just been discovered in the room of another guest by an irate husband. It's one of those books that takes you by the throat and you think, okay, this character I will follow for a while, even if it doesn't start to make sense right away. All right, and our final book about books. Final book, slightly less bonkers, a little more sort of complicated and learned, is Possession by A.S. Byatt, which won the book a prize, actually. And um, I'm going to start by saying, Graham, that I hated this book the first time I read it. Hated it, hated it, hated it, like medicine. <laughs> It just seemed so show-offy to me. And also, how entertaining can you make the story of, of an academic on a paper chase, essentially, about two Victorian poets? And even though I still think some of the more learned digressions in the book are kind of difficult to get to grips with, um, they also reinforce the point of it, which is about sending up the kind of academic approach to literature. And what really sells me on it is the romance. So it's it revolves around the mystery of the relationship between these two fictional Victorian writers. And ultimately, it was this really sort of aching, erotic attachment, I think, at the heart of the book that for me superseded all of the dry old speculation about their work. It's for me anyway, a book that starts out aiming to be about the brain and ends up being about the heart. It's nice to hear the name A.S. Byte again, because she was such a kind of colossus back in kind of the 80s. And she seems to have sort of faded from attention. Kind of giant mountain of English letters. Maybe we'll bring her back today. Let's bring back all the greats. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. 
Sarah. Uh, just a reminder that if you've been too busy trying to find your library card to note down the titles we've been talking about, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all the books that get mentioned on the podcast. All right, let's turn to the Uncommon Reader. The clubbers joining us to do that are ex-Orkney Library Twittermeister and now RSPB PR, Stuart Bain. Hello. Hello, Graham. <laughs> Teacher and YouTuber, Stephen Davis. Hello. Hi, Graham. Ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden. Hiya. Hi, Graham. And part-time librarian and full-time phone salesman, Jeff Watson, who chose the book for us to read. So, Jeff, what inspired you to bring the Uncommon Reader to the book club? I read this book just after it had actually been published and uh, I greatly enjoyed it back then. Uh, Following the death of the Queen last year, I was reflecting on how the landscape had changed. Uh, So much as I think uh, Alan actually said, I thought it'd be quite worthwhile at this juncture to re-examine that book and uh, see how it worked which is why I suggested it for the book club. And how many of the clubbers had read this book prior to being chosen today? This is my first Alan Bennett. Me too. Oh, first Alan Bennett. Okay. And Katie? I've read it before, yeah. What was your experience like this time? I think I read it and was like, oh, this is a sweet book. It sort of was nice. And that was it. That's as much of a thing as it made on me. And I actually, I really enjoyed reading it a second time, especially given the fact that the Queen died last year. It sort of has suddenly extra nostalgia and sort of moments to it in a weird way, you know. Because, Stuart, did you experience it as a, a more of a book about books or were you reading a book about the Queen, did you think? The first time I read it, which was on holiday, it felt very slight to me. I thought there wasn't much going on. It was just a nice, light story. And then because it's so short, I read it a few times on holiday and I'd realised there's much more substance to it. I think it's more about how reading and educating yourself can be seen as dangerous by certain people and questions about where the power actually lies in people that we might think of as powerful figures. I thought when you really delve into it, it's asking some pretty big questions. And that power of reading, the power of literature, I mean, that must have been music to your ears, Shiva. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't read it as being about... I mean, obviously there is that subtext. It's about the journey from being a voracious reader to being a writer. I read it more as a kind of gentle satire about this kind of cumbersome and antiquated institution. But I I think the way in which she goes on this journey from from reader to literary critic to writer, it was kind of a really beautifully well-crafted kind of novella in that regard. But also it is so well-written, don't you think? Like you feel like all books, if they're written by Alan Bennett, could be this short. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. He's an amazing writer. Because he gets so much funniness and such brief phrases, almost. I think he perfectly crafts every single line. It's all perfectly formed. And just so Alan Bennett, I've read the book several times, obviously. And then I did the audiobook. And I don't know why I bother doing the audiobook, because every single line that I actually read, I actually read it with Alan Bennett's voice in my mind. <laughs> There's no need to actually hear him because he's written the words and they come through as him. But, I mean, it is 
a beautifully crafted social satire, but in the middle of it, it's got a huge gold brick. And the more you read it, the more the gold brick hits you over the head. There's so many different levels to it. And I think that's a sign of a true master, really. Mm. And, you know, listen, we're all in a book club. We obviously like <laughs> fiction. But do you think it? Do you think it's real? Do you think someone being introduced to fiction, it could change someone this much? Stuart? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess part of that comes from a background working in libraries. I, I have seen firsthand how people's worlds can be opened up by fiction and, and there's maybe this idea that you need to read something worthy or you need to read something serious or factual for it to have an impact on you. But that's absolute nonsense. Anything that people want to read, it all helps just take them on that journey. And I, I think it was really interesting, the, the, the journey that Queen went on in this book and the fact that she started to regret like the opportunities she missed when she met authors because she hadn't been interested enough in them first time round. And I, I just found facts like that were, I, I just thought that was really interesting part of the book. The whole thing he said in the interview about how reading, you're expanded by it. It's so true. And I really love that depiction of the Queen, the fictitious Queen in this, of how she becomes an evolving reader, where it's like, because anyone who's loved books and had that journey, you have that experience where you come to something the first time sometimes and you go, oh, okay, whatever. And then sometimes you come back to something and you've got a completely different reaction because you've changed as a person, but also your reading's changed. It's an amazing experience to have that. I love the fact that the change wasn't just passive, that um, it's not enough for her just to internalise this. She she develops this urge to write. And I really related to that because the more fiction you absorb, the more, for many of us, there can be an urge to produce that as well, to actually go out and make a difference in the world yourself rather than just being changed yourself. And that was really a lovely bit of the book for me, I thought. Um, Stuart, obviously there's a mobile library, I'm guessing, in Orkney. That's what What's there? Is there one that goes around Orkney? There is indeed. Um, the mobile library service here began in 1963, so a long time ago. Um, goes around all the islands and a bit like the the one featured in the book also suffered some cutbacks and it shows that even the Queen isn't immune to the council decided that it needs to spend money elsewhere so I, I quite enjoyed that part of it as well. But yeah, still, still going strong after 60 years in Orkney. Why do you think he picked a mobile library? Do you think there's something particularly British? I think it's just the difference between the splendour of Buckingham Palace and her walking out <laughs> into this crumbling, you know, forgotten corner, this, this mobile library. I think that, that the, uh, the kind of contrast between the two settings probably. I thought that was symbolic, the mobile library, because it's like she's imprisoned in Buckingham yeah. Palace in a way. I mean, where is the Queen going to randomly walk into a library <laughs> unless it's on the grounds of her actual house? So there was something really touching... <laughs> quite poignant about the fact that it has to be a mobile library that she runs into mm. by accident in order for her to have access to this kind of reading at all. And it's such a gentle book, and yet it has this very dramatic ending, uh, which is slightly out of the blue. <laughs> uh, was anyone was anyone uh, slightly wrong-footed by the ending? Katie? It is the perfect ending for this book in the way that Alan Bennett does those sort of flourishing reveals at the end of things and it's like the ultimate punchline and it's fantastic and it's how this book should end i do think my dad's a staunch monarchist and his ex-army and is very like mr patriot and that's fantastic but he would be like 
and she'd never abdicate because she wouldn't do this. And so that's the sort of thing I couldn't help hearing in my head, this sort of slightly grumpy, well, that's just a step too far for a fictional queen to step down because duty's the thing, which sort of slightly ruined it. But I know that's a very unique problem for me to have as opposed to most readers. Anyone else uh, troubled by the ending? I think that um, the fact that the whole book has a funny subplot of various household members trying to scheme and plot against her reading in the first place it's not as big a surprise i think when you see that you know they're, they're trying to get rid of her books by bomb disposal or sending her luggage to calgary or whatever it is whatever scheme it is they come up with to try and and i love the corgis get involved as yeah, well <laughs> corgis ripping the books to shreds yeah, yeah. Uh, well it sounds like we all really enjoyed this book but i need to get your scores how likely are you that you'd recommend this book to a friend i'll start with you Stephen. Oh, I'd give it a 10. I really, really Ooh, I loved wow. it. I think it's a perfect, a gem of a wow. novel. Uh, I, 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 the second I finished it, I turned straight back to the beginning and read it again. Um, and it's just a, a joke that, that makes you laugh out loud every other page. There's so many quotable moments. So yeah, 10 out of 10. All right, big smiles. Uh, Katie, mm. how likely are you to recommend it? Yeah, I do actually recommend it a lot because it's a great intro book as well, I think, in terms of it's short, it's funny, it's got so many more layers than you think it does when you first read it through. Yeah, I'd say a 10 as well, definitely. And also, I suppose it recommends lots of books within it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Stuart Bain, how likely are you to recommend it? Well, guess what? I'm going to give it a 10 as well. I mean, it's a a book that that features libraries, if nothing else, and and (laughs) talks about how how powerful and life-changing reading can be. That needs a 10. Wow, do we need to deliver some bunting to Alan Bennett's house? We don't know. Uh, Jeff, how likely are you to recommend this book to a friend? <laughs> well, <clears throat> curiously enough, I would actually give it a 10. Oh! Hey! <laughs> my heart was in my mouth there for a minute. <laughs> I said it before, it's small and perfectly formed. And it's an ideal introduction to, to Alan Bennett, basically. Well, I cannot disagree with you. That is great news. Uh, Full house for Alan Bennett, the on-common reader. Uh, Now, as this is the last in our current run, we don't have a book for next time to hear about, but good news! You can catch up on any of our episodes that you might have missed, both on the Audible platform and wherever you get your podcasts. Amongst others, this series, we've spoken to Emma Donoghue about her smash hit Room, David Baldacci on his best-selling Memory Man, Leila Motley on her Booker-nominated Nightcrawling, and Gabrielle Zevin about the chart-topping Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. We even got all 19th century with Michael Rosen on Emile Zola's Germinal, all honestly dissected and discussed by our faithful band of clubbers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, You'll also hear from famous voices like Bill Bryson, Connie Hawk, Jay Shetty, Richard Armitage, Nicola Walker, Mel C, Elizabeth Day, and more. So, go and have a listen, and while you're there, it will be great if you can give us a rating and a review to help us get to more ears. Thank you to today's crew for talking about The Oncommon Reader, and we'll see you along the way. Bye-bye. Au revoir. Now, time for talking books and some searing social insight. As the French expression goes, hell is other people. And the fiery furnace of your place of employment is populated with as many types of demons as Dante's. While in high school and college, you could easily avoid any undesirable individuals by means of cliques and specialized extracurriculars, these juvenile systems of exclusion are null in the office. 
You're going to have to step up your game. Trixie Mattel and Katya Zamolojkova are two of America's best-known drag artists. They met on RuPaul's Drag Race Series 7 in the U.S. and became firm friends and firm audience favorites. They now have a YouTube channel, a TV show, a podcast, of course, The Bald and the Beautiful, and in 2020 they decided the world needed their combined wisdom in the shape of their book, Trixie and Katya's Guide to Modern Womanhood. Now they're back with even more advice, this time for the career woman, with their new title, Working Girls, Trixie and Katia's Guide to Professional Womanhood, for which they've also done the audiobook, which meant I had to talk to them, starting with why they felt driven to offer the world's working women their help. Luckily, we've both had and lost and been fired from every job, so there was a lot of wisdom when it comes to every version of, like, deliverer driving, to hooking, like between yeah, the yeah. two of us, we've done it all. Yeah, I'll let you figure out which one of us has done what. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the book is really funny, but writing a book isn't a funny process. It you actually have to kind of do it. So you mostly divided the work. Is that fair? I mean, there's a, a couple of bits where you both did, but how did it work? Were you sending bits to each other, or how did it work? We just chopped it all in half. Yeah, I mean, to be to be honest, most chapters was like, I've been fired four times, mm-hmm. so I knew I would do the firing chapter. Yeah. I'm passionate about the mafia, so I do organized crime. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. yeah. Or like, you know, I let her take the lead on things she would know about, like sex work or being uh, food delivery. Yeah, or, or being lazy or uh, being a bad employee, you know, stealing yeah. from work, things like that. But the, the truth is, drag is the ultimate fake it till you make it. You literally dress like a famous person until you become a famous person. And then, you know... Yeah. And drag is also the expression of dress for the job you want. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. And, I mean, some of this book could be useful. Oh, Graham, how dare you say that? <laughs> I mean, it's not It's not all a joke. It could be useful, like, if you need to, like, kill a cockroach, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. like, um, or, like, a doorstop <laughs> or, like, some kindling for a fire that's going out. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I mean, we do accidentally help people. But, listen, when I, with our little anecdotes, it's never a story of how we were right or how we knew exactly what to do, or how we figured it out. It's usually us being like, anyway, uh, my jaw's been clicking ever since. Don't do this. (laughs) You know what I mean? Totally. And when it came to doing the audiobook, I'm I'm guessing, so you don't need to be in drag to tap into Trixie and Katia. Oh, no. I went in full drag, Graham. (laughs) I went in full Vegas showgirl feathers. Um, I wore a lingerie. That's what I want to know. Yeah. I did a few things. I did, you know, I covered my brows, didn't draw any new ones on. I wore um, a short little mule. Um, I wore a gaff. Yeah. I wore a gaff and a packer, though. So I had a gaff and then a, and then, and then a fake, like, on top of it. Just to feel all the energies. Yeah. yeah. I actually really enjoy the audiobook. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the taping of the audiobook. It's fun. It is fun, and it's, it doesn't take as long as you think it does. I actually did mine, Graham, when we were doing Queen of the Universe. Oh, really? Mine was recorded in London. Oh. And you don't say yeah. that. Goodness. Wonderful. I took my iPhone down to Selfridges and just started talking. Stop it. But I think it is interesting trying to do an audiobook when it's funny. Like, do you did you find yourself giving little pauses for laughs, or did you just read through? Oh, God, yeah, that's a good question. I just, like, I go... I think I just treat it like it's a drama or that it's like a Ikea instruction booklet or something. I don't really go, I don't try to play it up, you know, comedy wise, you know, let, let the, the reader find the comedy in it. Yeah. Cause we wrote it for all like intense purposes. It's written like an earnest manual. Yeah. 
So we try to deliver it that way. Yeah. There was times where I wanted to ad lib and go like, well, this is really important actually. But yeah. I tried not to like. Oh, and let me tell you, Graham, they were so meticulous about every single word. There were so many times where I'd be like, oh, you, and she was mama, the editor who was uh, supervising the recording session. No, she was just so thorough. She was so thorough. It was incredible. Yeah. Like, she should have written our book. <laughs> she should have, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I like Katya clearly not thorough. <laughs> not very surprised that someone no, gave Oh, it's like you flub a few words, whatever, you know? Like, Katya's like, you wouldn't believe it. They made me read what was in the book. Yeah, and not only that, I had to do the exact words. <laughs> the same words I wrote. It was crazy. And, I mean, this is a, it's an interesting string to your bow. It's not a bow that many drag queens have, is, you know, best-selling books. So... Well, they're mostly illiterate. <laughs> Wait, tell Graham what RuPaul said when we did the first book. Oh my gosh, she was like, um, I asked her about, uh, I was on AJ and the Queen and I was like, asked her about tips for writing and she's like, because she had just published a book and I was like, do you have any tips of, like for writing? She's like, I would learn how to read first, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually great advice. Yeah, totally. It really is. I mean, yeah. if only all writers took that advice. Um, now let's get on to the questions that we ask everybody. Tell me this though, when you were younger, was there a book that kind of opened up the world of books to you? Was there a book that you remember as a kid kind of going, oh, wow, I like this whole idea of story and, and all of that? I mean, I used to read, like, really twisted books. Um, there was this author called Poppy Z. Bright. And when I was a teenager, she would write, like, um, necrophilia. I mean, crazy vampire stuff. Like, very, very dark, twisted, wacky, wacky shit. Um, and I just loved it. I was, like, probably 14, 15, 16. But I think it's really important not to censor any reading materials for your children. You know? I just don't believe in any of that. This is the third book right here, Advice for Mothers. Advice. Yes, yes, yeah. So you married a necrophilia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Women are from Mars, necrophiliacs are from Venus. Yeah. And and what about Trixie, when Trixie was a young girl? Any books? In my teen years, my first, like, adult books where I was, like, really loving it was the books by Augustine Burroughs, um, yeah, Running with Scissors. Running with Scissors. I'd read a... Dress Your Children in Corduroy and Denim. Who mm-hmm. wrote that book? David Sedaris. David Sedaris. I'd read his book, but the Augustine Burroughs books were so much darker and like nastier and yeah. sexier. And yeah. there was like abuse and neglect. And, and then his book, Dry, which is about his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I was a teenager just enthralled, but he was so gay and pulled no punches about his bad personal traits yeah, in yeah. the character. And I just, I still love those books. It's fierce. And uh, finally, is there a book that either of you would recommend to people that you wish more people read? Definitely. My recommendation would be a book of essays by David Foster Wallace called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. That's the biggest essay in the book. And it's about a cruise ship that he went on and hated so much. When he died, I like when he committed suicide. I mean, I was so sad. He's my favorite author. Trixie? Well, everybody knows that I love Watchmen. Mm. Watchmen turned my party. I've read it like four times in the past <laughs> year and a half. I mean, which Graham, is a it's a graphic crazy. novel. The pictures, there are pictures. It's just a little crazy, <laughs> but it's amazing. It's an amazing book. It just changed my whole mind and life. Trixie Mattel and Katya Zamolodjakova on their book loves and their best advice for working women everywhere.
Our books are nearly overdue, but before we get our cards confiscated, audiobook insider and chart maven, the head librarian herself, Holly Newson, is coming round the stacks to tell us what is flying off the shelves in the Amazon and Audible charts. Holly, what's getting your stamper red hot? <laughs> Well, this week, uh, The Myth of Normal by Gabal Mate and his son Daniel has been doing well in the charts, particularly as an audiobook, which is on the most read non-fiction chart. Um, it's a pretty long read for the mental health psychology genre, as the audiobook runs for over 18 hours. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, certainly a book you need to spend some time with. A lot of other authors and podcasters in the self-help space have been championing this, so that's going to have helped with its reach. And the subject matter around how modern social expectations can make us physically and mentally ill is definitely intriguing, but not quite as intriguing as the book's other idea that being authentic can make you well. Okay. I think is Gabor Mate, is he the guy he's worked with Prince Harry, I think, about childhood trauma. You yeah, he um he's been around. Right, he's so hot right now. He's so hot right now. <laughs> uh, all right, what else is on the reserved list? Well, this one feels like a bit of a curveball to me, but in fairness, it does fit into a current chart trend of people wanting to engage with emotional stories. Um, it's a memoir called Finding Hildesay, and it's by Christian Lewis, who is an ex-paratrooper who was pretty lost in life, but found joy again by walking the coast of the UK. A BAFTA-nominated documentary was made from his story, but this book is his telling of it. Um, so this came out in February and I think it will keep a place in the overall charts for a little while. Okay, good for him. <laughs> and finally. <laughs> yeah, we'll finish with another memoir, Pamela Anderson and her book, Love, Pamela. Um, it was out at the end of January, which is a slightly odd time to release a celebrity memoir and makes me think it was either a very hasty commission or took longer to get out than expected. But anyway, is doing pretty well in the biographies chart and is very much billed as her reclaiming her story. From the reviews, fans mostly seem to be pretty pleased. And I'm guessing some of that timing might have been to tie in with the big Netflix documentary about her. Yeah, I, I think so. I just feel like wouldn't you get ahead in the autumn memoirs season? Oh. I don't know. Pamela, <laughs> she's always been a rule breaker. She, yeah, she, she, she won't be tired. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Holly, for these and indeed all your splendid statistics and fascinating facts from the book chart world this series. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to help Jeff get into his drag librarian costume, so it just remains for me to thank Sarah Collins for lending me her book-related brilliance. Thank you very much, Sarah. Oh, I'm going to miss you, Graham. Well, when I see you next, you will be fully recovered, I, I, no <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Let's hope I'll be doing the tango. Yeah, take care. <laughs> uh, we will be back at the autumn with a brand new series with more authors, more famous voices and more clubber chats. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye. 